nations eclipsed by his glory. You know, I know that the Bible tells us there will be no tears in heaven. But I kind of hope when I see Jesus, he gives me one good cry. Just marveling at who he is and what he has done for me. His glory so grand that anything that happened to me on this earth doesn't matter. I hope he gives me one good cry. Because a good cry can be cathartic. Our text this morning uh, comes from John chapter 9. We will read the first 12 verses of the chapter and our focus will be verses 1 through 7. So reading from John chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So Jesus said to, or, uh, so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. The uh, Puritan preacher, Matthew Henry, commenting on this particular passage, said, he that is blind has no enjoyment of light. He that is born blind has no idea of it. And what Matthew Henry meant was that if you are born with your sight, and either through disease or, or uh, the significance of the passage of time, and you grow old and your sight starts to fail you, then the fact of the matter is, you can still remember what it was like to see. Light has meaning for you. But if you are born blind, think about it for a minute. How would you, being able to see, explain something like, oh, I don't know, color, to someone who has never experienced it? How would you describe the differences between blue and green and yellow and orange and red? You couldn't do it. How would you describe light to someone for whom it is a foreign concept? It would be impossible. Such was the estate of the man begging at the temple that day. 
The disciples and Jesus are passing through the temple and they pass by this man. And the disciples see him and they decide that they want to ask Jesus some questions. They ask Jesus, Jesus, why is this man born blind? Why does he suffer? Is it because he sinned or is it because his parents sinned? It's actually kind of a profound question. Why is this man suffering? Because the, and then they tied it to sin. Now the fact of the matter is that all of suffering is tied to sin. When Adam and Eve took that first step into rebellion in the Garden, uh, or Garden of Eden and took us with them, we broke God's perfect creation. And in that moment, sin and death and famine and disease and anything that causes suffering entered into our lives. Sin caused that. We live in a fallen world and it has effects on us every day. But the disciples' question wasn't a general one about fallenness and how it affects us every day. The disciples' question was, what specific sin did this man commit? Or what specific sin did his parents commit that causes God to punish him with this blindness? See, to them, it had to be one of those two things. The Jewish leaders of the time taught that someone's suffering was because of some specific sin in their life or in their parents' life. In fact, they believed that someone could be born deformed, born with a congenital defect, born blind because it was possible for a baby to sin in the womb. I don't know, maybe that's what the kicking is. I kind of doubt it. But this was the prevailing theory. Or some of them held that the soul actually pre-existed the womb. Meaning that at some point in time, that soul committed some sort of sin. And then when that soul was, became a baby and was born, he was born into suffering, born into punishment by God. If it wasn't his sin then, then it had to be his parents' sin because they were also taught that. And that teaching probably came from a misunderstanding of uh, the Old Testament, in particular a misunderstanding of the second commandment. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, you don't have to turn there. Uh, I'll read it to you. God is giving the Ten Commandments, and he gets to the second one about idols. And he says this. You shall not bow down to idols or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Aha, see? Proof. God punishes the son for the sins of the father. But the problem is that's a bad interpretation of this verse. That's not what God is saying in this warning. What God is saying here is that, look, when a nation's fathers, when those that rise up to lead a nation, when an entire generation sins against God, takes what should be God's and directs it at other gods, whether they are actual religions or just worldly philosophies, when a nation does that, so disastrous is that momentum that it will take multiple generations, three, maybe four, to right the ship and put, point it back to God. 
kind of a sobering thought when we consider the state of our country right now. But that is what God is saying there. He's not saying a son gets punished because his father sinned. In fact, God gives us other scripture that make it abundantly clear. If we flipped over just a few books to the prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel in chapter 18 receives a word from the Lord. And through Ezekiel, the Lord says this, Yet you, the people, say, Why should not the son suffer for the iniquity or sins of the father? And the Lord responds thusly, When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, God doesn't punish a son for the sin of the parent. Now, we have to acknowledge something right now, I think, because it is absolutely true that, that children can bear the consequences of the sins of their parents. Just ask any daughter whose father is an alcoholic if she suffers the consequence of her father's sin. Or think about the havoc that divorce can wreak in the lives of the children involved. Now, children can suffer the consequences of their parents' sin. But that is not the same thing as being punished by God for the, for the sin of their parents. That is completely anti-biblical. And in fact, it doesn't even ring true to us in our day-to-day -day lives as we think about the world around us. It just rings false. Think for a moment of some of the brothers and sisters in Christ you have known who are God-honoring, Jesus-loving saints and yet have endured immense, immense tragedy and pain in their lives. Flip that coin over. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world seems full of rank sinners who live long lives with no burden and no disease. It just doesn't ring true to us. Let me put it to you this way. How can we hold to the idea that someone's suffering is tied to their specific sin when we live in a country that slaughters innocent, precious babies in the womb? And yet the doctors that commit these murders the judges that find the mythical right to do so, and the legislators that promote and want to expand the right to kill our unborn children, they all live long, happy lives in the lap of luxury. No, no. Suffering cannot always be explained from specific sins. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says to the disciples, you're, you're thinking about this all wrong, guys. It is not that this man sinned. It is not that his parents sinned. Well, if that's the case, they still have a suffering man in front of them. So the heart of their question is still out there. Okay, so it wasn't his sin. It wasn't his parents' sin. Then, Jesus, why does this man suffer? Why 
do we suffer? Jesus, not surprisingly, has an answer for us. He gives it to the disciples. He says, you suffer so that the glory of God, the works of God, might be displayed in you. In other words, your suffering is for the glory of God. Think about this man's life for just a moment. This blind man here. You might say that the entirety of his life led up to this very moment. Because he was blind, he was where God wanted him to be when God wanted him to be there. Had he been, had his eyes worked, wouldn't have gone that way. It was the Sabbath. So thousands and thousands of people entered and exited the uh, temple that day. And most of them did not have an encounter with Jesus Christ. If this man's eyes and his life were just like those other people, he would have missed Jesus entirely. He would have brought his sacrifice. He would have sung a few songs of praise. He might have listened to a homily. And then he would have gone about his merry way and had no idea that the Savior of the world was there. But he was born blind. And his whole life, he suffered the affliction of that blindness. And because he was born blind on that day, he was at the temple gate from sunup to sundown because he needed money for food. So he was there when Jesus passed by. His suffering literally brought the glory of God in Jesus Christ to him. Why do we suffer? We suffer for the glory of God. How do we suffer? How does God's glory get revealed in our suffering? That's a tougher question to answer. Um, the fact of the matter is that God never does the same thing the same way, twice it seems. In his infinite knowledge and in his, his um, work to hold the entirety of the universe together and to bring about his good and perfect purposes, he deals with each of his children in unique ways. So how does my suffering, how does your suffering glorify God? It's different from person to person. In this man's life, we read it earlier, it's no spoiler alert, we know what happens, we'll talk about it more in a minute here. He gets healed. That's, that's, that's obvious glory right there. And I have known brothers and sisters who have suffered through disease, who have suffered through hardship, that God has miraculously delivered out of that. And it is, it is an amazing thing. And it is a reason for great joy and praise. But can I tell you what has impressed me in my experiences more than that? When I have encountered a brother or sister who 
has experienced great suffering, and some of them have suffered even to the end. But in the midst of their pain and their grief, they proclaim that God is good. That's a God worth following. I want to follow and seek after a God who is so beautiful, is so irresistible, is so glorious that those that suffer the most praise Him and love Him. That is the God we should want to follow. And when I have encountered men and women like that, I will tell you that my faith has been encouraged and has been inspired. I could embarrass people in here, and I won't. But let me tell you, I see faces in here, and I know what you've gone through, and I've seen your faith through it. And I don't know if you realized it at the time. You might be going through it right now, and you don't realize it right now. You might think God doesn't care. You don't, you don't see God's glory. I will remind you that God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock when he was closest to him. I'll bet it was pretty dark in the cleft of that rock. But he did it because God was closest to him when his glory was most well known. And Moses only realized it until God had passed by and could see the back end of God's glory. You might not realize the glory in your life being revealed, but I do. When you say God is good in your, in your pain, when you say God is glorious in your pain, that makes God glorious to me. And I thank God for it, and I thank God for you. We suffer for God's glory. Now, there's much more that we could say about this, but I, I do want to sort of round out this first part of the man's story. I, I, I want to see what happens, so we will press on. Um, picking up the reading there in verse 4, uh, Jesus has told them that you suffer for God's glory, and then he says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, while, or we must do the works while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, I want to focus on his interaction with the man, uh, but let me just leave you this for those two verses. Jesus is saying to them, look, there is work to be accomplished. He knows that the cross is but a few months away. His time with them in their presence is limited. It is fleeting. And he knows that there is work still to be done on earth before the work shifts to spreading the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying to them, guys, come with me. Do this work with me. Day, while day is here, night is coming. Reference to when he's with them versus when he is not with them. And then he goes on to say, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. This is the second time he has testified this about himself. We looked at this a few weeks ago with Pastor Randy when, he testified, when Jesus testified, I am the light of the world. Jesus is revealing to them his identity, telling them who he is. In fact, this is a, this is a claim to deity. Because who gives the light world? God gives the light world. And he says, I am the light of the world. This is a claim to be God. 
But knowing that the disciples don't always get it when he says things, they're a little bit thick-headed, he says, let me give you a little bit of evidence, okay? Let me give you something tangible you can, you can behold to sort of build up this claim, this, this uh, testimony of mine, that I am the light of the world. So that starts happening uh, there in verse 6. So, having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The Gospel of John is actually full of Jesus and blind people. It's basically what the entire gospel is. Um, John tells us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry that he had a multitude of people that were interested in him and that were following him. But as time went on, as the months passed and his ministry went into the second and the third year, that great group of people started getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the reason that it got smaller was because the people were blind to who Jesus was and what he was actually doing. They wanted the parlor tricks. They wanted the miracles. They wanted the free food. They wanted the pithy sayings. They wanted the good teaching. But Jesus was telling them, no, I've come to redeem you from your sins. We're Jews, Jesus. We don't need that. We've got the law. So they were blinded to who Jesus was. And little by little, they left him and left him and left him and left him until he was uh, left with but his friends. They were blind. The Pharisees were also blind. They were blinded by their hatred of Jesus. In no small irony, the Pharisees hounded Jesus while claiming the name of God. They pursued and they persecuted Emmanuel, God with them, in God's name. So, so rank was their hatred for Jesus. They were blinded to who he was, that he was God with them. The people in the temple structure that day, they were blinded by their routine. They came, they offered their sacrifices, they sang their hymns of praise, and they went home. And they never realized that as they were in the temple, a symbol of God's presence... God was literally present with them in the person of Jesus Christ. And they missed it because they were blinded by their routine. The disciples also exhibit a little blindness here too. Um, now, they tend to be a little bit closer to the mark than most other people we read about in the gospel accounts, but they're still off a lot. And in this case, the disciples were blinded by what they wanted to learn. They did not see a blind man suffering in front of them. They saw an opportunity to ask Jesus a theological question. Look, the fact of the matter is, theological, the, the, theology is very, very important. One of my great joys in life is having theological conversations with my dad. Now, before he was retired, he would bill me for those hours, but I enjoyed them nonetheless. <laughs> All right? Theology is important, and I like it. I love it. I also know that some of you are intimidated by it. I get it. A lot of people are intimidated by theology. 
It conjures up images of old men in robes and white long beards and dusty libraries reading books that are the size of a small toddler. I, I get it. It can be scary, but it shouldn't be scary. We all do theology. If you've got your Bible open right now, if you're listening to me talk about Jesus, you're doing theology. We all do it. Theology is important. But if theology prevents you from seeing someone who is suffering in front of you, it is a hindrance. And that's where the disciples were. They wanted their theological questions answered. But they missed the man who was hurting in front of them. Jesus didn't, though. Jesus' focus remained on the man the whole time. Uh, the rest of the scene kind of unfolds in kind of a bizarre way. Um, Jesus kneels down at the feet of the man. He spits in the dirt and makes mud with it. And then he smears the mud on the guy's face. Some of you are germaphobes and you're uh, creeping out right now. It's kind of weird, right? Why, why would Jesus do that? I mean, couldn't he just bop him on the forehead and say, be healed? He's God. He could do it with a thought. And yet here he goes to these elaborate means to accomplish this miracle. It's not the first time Jesus used his own saliva to heal people. In fact, he healed other blind people with his own saliva. He healed a deaf mute with his own saliva. So I don't know, maybe this was just what Jesus liked to do. Maybe there was a cultural significance to saliva. But as I, we, we really don't know, the Gospels don't specify. But, but as I read it, I thought, and understand, these are just my thoughts, okay? So do with them what you will. But as I read it, I think the second that Jesus touched the man's eyes, they were healed. But he had mud caked on them, so he couldn't open them. He didn't know that he could see. You see, because Jesus then goes on to tell him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Another very odd request of Jesus, because the pool of Siloam wasn't right there. The man would have to travel a ways to do it. And in that moment, the man had options. Jesus has smeared this mud on his eyes. He had options. He could have just taken his hands, wiped the mud off. Yeah, he would have been a little bit dirty, but let's be honest. He spent his life being treated like dirt by a society that had discarded him. He could have done that. He could have asked someone near him, bring me some water to wash with. There were people there that knew him. We read that earlier. They knew who he was. Certainly someone there would show some kindness on him and bring him a basin of water so that he could wash his, his face right there and he wouldn't have to take the dangerous trip to a different place. But instead, what does he do? He listened to and obeyed the voice of Jesus Christ. So this man, with his eyes still closed because of the mud, got up, felt his way out of the temple compound, trekked down the temple mount, made his way to the pool of Siloam, and there he washed his face. And in an instant, his eyes were opened. Brad, I have missed you. <laughs> in an instant, his eyes 
were opened. And his whole world changed. What used to be just the sound of voices was now faces. What used to be just noises and textures was now the beautiful color of God's creation. Everything about his experience was turned up on end because for the first time in his life he had seen light and light gave definition to the world around him. If that ain't a miracle, I don't know what is. And the fact of the matter is, Jesus heals this man of his blindness. Slight spoiler alert, in a, in a week or two, Randy will take us in and he will show us that an even greater miracle in this, life, this man's life is yet to come. kind of want to talk about it right now, but I won't. <laughs> but this man who was born blind was healed. In the midst of a multitude of of people who were spiritually blind, Jesus healed a man who was physically blind because he is the light of the world. Now, I don't know if I've shared this with you, you all before. I've certainly shared it with my Sunday school class. One of the things I like to do when I read a passage like this is I like to put myself in the story. Um, it helps me to better better relate to the events and the people involved, and it just makes it a little bit more real to me when I think, well, who would I be? So, so I thought, well, who would I be in this particular story? You know, maybe I could be the people that are just sort of implied, and that's the people that were there at the temple that day. The man was there begging because there was a source of income. There were people there who had money that were going to be willing to give it to him, and he needed it. Maybe I could be one of those people. Maybe I could be someone who gave to people without expecting anything in return. Wouldn't that be something? That would be amazing to be that kind of person. Maybe I could be that kind of person. Maybe I could be the disciples. Yeah, okay, the disciples, they tripped a lot. But in general, they were Jesus' friends. That's pretty cool. And they got a lot of things, too. And, and in this moment, okay, yeah, they didn't see the blind man. But, but they were interested in deep conversations with Jesus. And they knew that Jesus was the one that could answer their conversations. I mean, I think that that's pretty noble. That, that, you know, it's worth wanting to be one of the disciples here, wanting to know more about God and how he operates and who he is. Maybe I could be one of the disciples. Do I dare dream that I could be like Jesus in this story? Now, I don't mean healing a blind man. What I mean is Jesus who saw hurting when other people didn't. Jesus who wanted to explain to the people around them who God was, to draw them closer to God. If, could I maybe be like that by the power of the Holy Spirit? That would be amazing. How great would that be? Something to strive for. But no. I'm not any of those people. I'm the man born blind. We all are. I was born into a spiritual blindness. A darkness of my heart and my mind. And my soul's desire was to seek more and more darkness. That was the reality that I knew. I did not even know that there was a greater reality out there because of my blindness. 
but for reasons I will never understand. Jesus bent down to an eight-year-old little boy and he touched his eyes. And in that moment, I didn't know it all. I knew very little. I was eight, year old, eight years old, but for Pete's sake. How much could I know? And yet what I did know, I gave to Jesus. And you know what he gave me in return? For my teeny tiny little gift of what I knew, he gave me everything. He gave me eternity. And in that moment, my eyes were opened and I saw the light for the first time, just like that blind man 2,000 years ago. And just like him, my entire world changed. I saw new dimensions in the world that I never saw before. I saw people differently. I saw my behavior differently. I saw God himself differently. And since then, the Holy Spirit has been walking me along that path. And from time to time, I have closed my eyes again. And you know what? When I closed my eyes, the Holy Spirit didn't let go of my hand. The Holy Spirit held it tighter. And he said, you're going the wrong way. Let's go this way. And when I opened my eyes again, I was amazed at where God had brought me through that pain and suffering. God, Jesus, still opens blind eyes. He takes eight-year-old little boys. He took me, a blind beggar, sitting in the dirt, hoping for scraps. He took me and he made me a joint heir with a king. Seated in the high places, feasting at the very table of God Almighty, all because Jesus, the light of the world, opens blind eyes. And he still does. Jesus still opens blind eyes. And when our eyes are opened, we see our suffering differently. Because in our suffering, what happens is, it's like a horse with blinders. You know the principle, right? You put blinders on a horse so the horse can only see directly in front of him. He doesn't get distracted by other things. Our blinders kind of do that. But the blinders that pain puts on our eyes aren't like a horse's blinders. They're more like this. And we can't see two steps in front of us. Pain makes us myopic. God reminds us of eternity. You see, in our suffering, once we have seen Christ for who he is because he is the light of the world and he has opened our eyes. In our suffering, we realize that we are not alone. We don't serve a God for whom our pain and our suffering is foreign. No, we serve King Jesus. We serve King Jesus who, though he was without sin, was wrongfully accused was put through the sham of a trial, was ridiculed and mocked, was scourged and beaten, and finally was put to death on a criminal's cross. We serve a God who, when we are in the valley of despair, is there with us. He's there with us, 
and he knows what it's like. Our Jesus is a man of sorrows, well acquainted with our grief. So when we are in despair, having had our eyes open, we know we see God, we have accepted Jesus as Christ, and yet we are going through suffering. When that happens, remember and look to Jesus. Remember Jesus, who when he saw a crowd that was lost and dying, he had compassion on them. We were that crowd. Remember Jesus. Look to Jesus, who openly wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Look to Jesus, who on the cross cried out to God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? Look to and remember Jesus. And then you yourselves cry out to God in your suffering. And know with confidence that because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and what God accomplished in raising him from the dead, when you cry out to God, he will never forsake you. We suffer for God's glory. God's glory is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. In a moment, we will sing uh, a hymn of invitation. Um, I'll pray first, but it's, this is your opportunity to respond to God's word. I told you, God still opens blind eyes. It's a, it, it, frankly, it's, it's, a, it's a more profound miracle than actually causing this blind man's eyes to physically work. When he opens your eyes, that miracle is beyond what we can comprehend. He wants to do that for you. You have only to ask. So as the Spirit leads you, you respond to his call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Father, we could not know anything about you unless you revealed it to us first. And we couldn't see it or understand it in the darkness of our hearts, in the darkness of our blindness. And yet you send Jesus into our midst, the light of the world, that he might illuminate the world as it truly is for us. And we see it for the first time. And our very first response is to praise, honor, and glorify you. Father, we just love you so much. But God, some of us are hurting. You know that. You care. You care more than we even possibly could. I believe fully, God, that when we cry, you cry. When we hurt, you hurt. Uh, Father, I ask that you would comfort those that are hurting right now. That you would make painfully evident what you are accomplishing in their lives. That your glory would be so real and so obvious to them that they look at these temporary afflictions and say, I wouldn't trade them for the world if they mean heaven. God, we love you, we praise you, we honor you, we adore you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.